Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, and this is episode number 63, the Derek Richardson, Derek Richardson episode, as the seasoned 26-year veteran NBA referee has officiated 1,362 regular season games, yet oddly has just been assigned to one playoff game throughout his referee career. But on a brighter note, Richardson is the executive director of the Why Can't We Make a Difference Foundation, which mission is, is to increase elementary school students' academic and emotional interests in school throughout academic and social enrichment programs in the underserved school communities of Los Angeles, where Richardson now resides. Awesome stuff there by Mr. Richardson. And speaking of awesome stuff, we've got a special guest in the house tonight, ESPN's Mark Kestisher is going to be joining us. But before we get to him, Bet Online is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and the latest matchup reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. Bet Online continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. And get in on all the action. Remember to use promo code BELIEF, that is B-L-E-A-V, for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And tonight, Bruce, we'll start with you doing tonight's introductory honors of the special guest. All right, Ross. ESPN is blessed with some of the greatest game callers in the basketball world. We all know about Mike Breen on the TV side. But Mark Kestisher is the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio. And if you haven't heard Kesty call a game, check him out next season and treat yourself to a great audio experience. Kesty's not only the voice of the NBA, but he does college football, baseball, women's hoop, and many other special events. His booming voice and enthusiasm for the game has delighted fans around the country who are in their cars when the biggest games are taking place. Like myself, Kesty is a product of Syracuse University, and in his three decades, he's called games for his hometown Albany patroons of the old CBA and worked his way up from Albany to Cleveland and eventually landed at ESPN in 1999. Welcome, Kesty. Bruce, Ross, it's good to be with you. I'm sure the story will get out there eventually, but Bruce and I are on this uh, edition, thankfully, in 2006, we nearly uh, evaporated through a Houston toll booth. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> to be determined at a later time. Good to be on with you guys. Kesty, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, that was one of the times in my life that my life probably would have flashed in front of my eyes, except I think I was half asleep behind the wheel. So don't we, try we this had, at home, kids. We had a 6 a.m. flight leaving the Houston All-Star game. I think it was 2006. And yes, we were very bleary-eyed for that long 45-minute ride to Bush International. And uh, we were just having a good conversation because – you know, back in those days, you know, I was in a cave in the radio department. Bruce was Mr. Big on TV, so we're getting to know each other. And I'm just like, Bruce, I, I think it's a toll gate. I think it's a toll gate. I think it's a toll gate <laughs> on the brakes. And uh, we survived. And all these years later, here we are. Thank you, Kesty. And uh, you've gone on to a wonderful career in spite of uh, my driving lack of prowess. So let's talk about that career, shall we? You joined ESPN Radio in 1999, so you're coming up on a quarter century with the company, Kesty. That was quick. Uh, I'd like to say I had hair when I started, but you know that uh, I remember being a freshman at Syracuse, and I was at Lawrence and Hall in 1986, about a 20-story tower near mm -hmm. the Carrier Dome. 
And, you know, we were always playing all kinds of sports. And so the first day I'm there, I'm playing a softball game and my roommate is yelling at me from one of the high floors. And he's like, Mark, Mark. And I'm looking up like, what? And he goes, you got a bald spot. And that was at 18. <laughs> uh, I'm 30 at ESPN and there was, there was no hair there. But I, um, I had given up on the play-by-play dream, to be honest. You know, when I got to Cleveland, it was time for me to, to move on. I had a great time doing minor league sports in Albany, New York, which was my hometown. And I just wanted a, you know, a bigger market experience. And I thought maybe I could land some play-by-play in Cleveland, obviously, uh, you know, as a 26-year-old, not realizing all the jobs are locked down. But I, I went the studio route, doing updates, hosting shows, telling everybody that would listen, hey, if you need a filling for Indians play-by-play, you know, when the Guardians uh, had that former name, you know, I was there for them. And... Fortunately, that job led me to ESPN in 1999, and then I had to knock on the doors all over again. And, you know, we had the late, great Jim Durham as our play-by-play voice. Brent Musburger's doing the finals, you know, and he had such a history with the NBA. Mike Tirico becomes, you know, the lead guy um, after, uh, you know, Jim Durham had passed. And then Kevin Calabro, who's the great voice of the Seattle Sonics, now in Portland. You talk about booming voices. You know, I love listening to Kevin. And so I figured my lot in life was, you know, settled and I was getting the occasional game and I worked myself up to the number two team by 2012 and I was having a great career. And then when Mr. Tarico and Calabro both left after the 2016 season, um, to my surprise and delight, you know, I became the guy. They trusted me with it. And here we are getting ready for uh, my eighth season as the lead guy. Still can't believe they let me do it. Still can't believe it. Mark, thanks for joining us here tonight. Now, when you think of your most unique experiences, three years ago to this month, you were in the Orlando bubble calling the NBA playoffs. Does that seem like a lifetime ago? And what was your greatest memory from that unique experience? You know, it's funny, Ross, because it seems like just yesterday, and yet I still have to figure out the years. I'm like, all right, were we still in COVID protocols last year? Or was that 21? And um, it does feel like a long time ago, and it was, I tell everyone, it was one of the greatest experiences. Obviously, it was, you know, at a time in our planet when it wasn't the greatest time, but to me, it was the world's best adult summer camp for broadcasters <laughs> because not only were we calling games every day, but in our part of the bubble, which we were separated from the players and the coaches. You know, we were getting tested, I think, every other day at at the start. And then every day once, you know, we got to a certain point. But to sit down and have meals with Mike Breen and Dave Pash and the TNT guys, Kevin Harlan and Ian Eagle, all these guys I respect. And yet it's really just a pass in the hallway on game nights. Hey, how you doing? Loved your call the other night. You know, is there anything I can help you with with this team turned into, you know, let's have lunch. Let's go play 18 holes. And this was day after day after day. It was wake up, do a Zoom with coaches for that night's game, maybe play 9 or 18, do prep, drive to the uh, arena and call games. And it was was a different experience, that's for sure. But uh, I look back on it fondly. Luckily, you didn't have to do talkbacks from your hotel room, you know, like Rachel Nichols did. Oh, yeah, no, no, that didn't, uh, yeah. Not, I wouldn't be here with mind. you again. That's twice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, so last week uh, 
we had Cassidy Hubbard on the show. Um, great dear friend who's having a wonderful career and we're so proud of her. And we asked her for her thoughts about Doris Burke. Now, you've also worked quite a bit with Doris. So can you share any thoughts on working uh, on what it's like to work with the woman that Cassidy calls the GOAT? Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate to call a couple TV games with her. And then uh, when they elevated her to analysts for the NBA Finals on radio, we just finished our fourth finals together. Um, she is an incredible trailblazer. She's so smart with how she sees the game and even more so how she quickly breaks it down. She has so much respect from all the coaches and players. You could see that it's evident um, when, you know, in the finals specifically, I can remember this just from a few months ago, you know, when Eric Spolster or Michael Malone or any of the players come in, um, there's just a level of attention that they give her that maybe they don't give me when I'm doing those interviews with PJ Carlissimo. And that's a testament uh, to what she means to the league. Something you don't see that I noticed right away working with her, especially on TV games, was, um, and this is way inside broadcast, but you guys know, there's a box in front of all the, the announcers, and one of them is a cough switch, and one of them is a talkback switch. And the talkback, when you press it, goes to your producer. Everyone can hear you in the truck, but you're largely talking to your producer and your director. And I've never seen someone who can have a conversation while I'm calling the game, still be the analyst when I stop calling the game, and has set up her replays and her highlight packages for halftime. She's nonstop. I mean, she might be Mike Tirico-esque in her ability to do that, almost wow. directing as an analyst. And I noticed that from the very first day. Um, and I'm going to miss her terribly. It's going to be great for those who will be watching the NBA Finals moving forward. Uh, three people in the radio booth is challenging, but Doris, um, who has no ego, was willing to do whatever PJ Carlissimo wanted to do. And PJ's the same. No, no, no. Let Doris be the star. And I said, just give me five seconds to call the play and then you guys figure it out. Um, you know, she was amazing at that. We will miss her in that role. You know, you mentioned PJ a couple of times there. And, you know, he's the older brother we all wish we had. Yeah. I mean, but there are very few people who know him better than you do. But I want to talk about post-game meals now with PJ. Is there a single Mater D in North America that that dude doesn't know? I mean, can you remember any classic late-night dinner stories that are safe to tell? I mean, we've had a few, but you've had millions. Tell us, Dish. Well, I, I think I'm still trying to lose weight from the last uh, set of uh, playoff runs. I don't think I've lost enough, but I still have like another two months before we get heavy into this, no pun intended. Um, PJ's amazing. He won't eat all day. I mean, he might get a Chick-fil-A sandwich like around noontime, and that's it. And, you know, when I go to the arena, you know, I need something like a salad, anything, just to, you know – Get the juices flowing. I don't think I can make it through the broadcast without that. And I'm like, PJ, need anything from, uh, you know, the uh, the media area? Nope, 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 because he's waiting for a great meal. And I can't do that. And then as soon as that game's over, Bruce is right. Um, doesn't matter where we are in the country. People will keep their kitchen open. We will walk into restaurants at 11, 1130, get treated like kings, uh, mostly Italian. So great food. And when you say North America, I did a, a football game a Jaguars game in London uh, for ESPN radio a number of years ago. 
And I told PJ, hey, I'm going to London. And the first thing he said was not have a great trip was, hey, I know this guy at so-and-so Australia, <laughs> street name, sends me the contact information on my phone and basically sets up like an eight o'clock Saturday night dinner for us, you know, before we even call this game on Sunday. I don't know if I could share some of the great stories. I yeah. will say that um, when we go to Boston, I, I love because Mike Gorman and his wife come out with us. And so when I can have Mike Gorman and PJ Carlissimo talking old school Big East, that's right in our wheelhouse. I was a freshman the fall of 86. So that was Syracuse's 86-87 run to the national championship. And then, of course, my senior year of high school was the year there were three Big East teams at the Final Four. So just trying to ply some stories out of them. Um, I, I'm always fascinated because to me, Mike Gordon, you know, is this broadcasting god. And it's because he was on those Big East telecasts. And to find out that I don't think he realized at the time, you know, how much inroads they made into our living rooms because the Big East was so hot. I remember Stevie Thompson, who played at Syracuse, uh, saying many years later when I was in the CBA, he and Keith Smart, by the way, were on the same CBA team, which wow. never made sense to me because that was 87. Keith Smart, I love him, but there's still a part of me that uh, yeah, struggles yeah, with that. But Stevie went to Crenshaw in Los Angeles. And so to hear about guys who came home from school at 4.30 in the afternoon to put on St. John Syracuse or Georgetown Syracuse, you know, was kind of kind of kind of mind blowing. But anything um, Seton Hall is a, is a good conversation. I could be anywhere in New Jersey. My wife and daughter are into uh, K-pop music and I drove them down to a concert in Newark. And I'm on the phone in the car waiting for them to come out. And he goes, well, where are you? And I said, oh, there's this place called White Eagle Hall. And like the next hour, he's telling me about how White Eagle Hall was basically the home gym for St. Anthony's, where the Hurleys went and played their high school basketball and the great program that, um, you know, Bob Hurley Sr. built. Mm -hmm. And I know how much it meant to PJ to be on the uh, radio broadcast call when Danny Hurley led UConn to the national championship. Um, and I think uh, favorite conversations this past finals when we were in Denver was I had forgotten that's where Seton Hall won their Sweet 16 and Elite Eight matchup that went over Indiana. Uh, I forget. It might have been UNLV to get them to the Final Four to go to Seattle. Uh, so I'm always probing him about 1989 Seton Hall. And we can go in a million directions. And I still have a lot to ask him. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next season. That's amazing. And uh, speaking of legends, uh, another one you've done a lot of games with is Hubie Brown. He's a, a remarkable individual. So can you tell our listeners something about Hubie that they would never know? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, he's going to be 90 this year. I think most people probably yeah. know that, or maybe they just knew he was getting up there. Yeah. He's 90. He's sharp as a tack. His, his brain can still function knowing yesterday, knowing 10 years ago, knowing 50 years ago. I don't even know what I had for dinner, and that was like two hours ago. <laughs> um, I remember we did the finals together in 2019, and, you know, he's Hubie Brown. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's in his 80s, and there he was lugging six bags of luggage through the Toronto airport, through customs. Hubie, can I help you? No, I got this. Uh, you know, where's the car? It's right around the corner, two miles later. He's still chugging away. Um, 
that's the most amazing thing to me is that not only does he still sound great on the air and he's, as we always like to say, forgotten more basketball than I'll ever know. Um, I remember asking him about when he got to the NBA in the early 70s. And obviously it's not the same league that it is now as far as, you know, money and travel. And he told me about, he was, I think, an assistant in Milwaukee. And they're on a commercial flight on Christmas Day. I might be going to Omaha. And it was six in the morning. There's Oscar Robertson. It's freezing out in Milwaukee. And they're flying to another frozen town in the middle of winter. And they check into a Holiday Inn. And there's not a soul around. There's not a restaurant. There's nothing. This is like Christmas Day, 1973, let's say. You know, there's no uh, chain stores that are open or chain restaurants like they are now. And so just the visuals of early 70s NBA, uh, his Ted Turner stories, I probably can't tell, but they're hilarious. That man <laughs> has led an interesting life from there. You got to write a book, Kesty. Write a, write, put that right. one in the book. But you know what's great? Another thing people don't know. Um, when we were in San Francisco, because the Warriors were in the finals every year, those three years we did the uh, finals together, 17, 18, and 19, he would disappear like once every finals in San Francisco. And then finally I just said, you know, where do you go? And he was in, he was an Army guy, like so many of his age that served. And in the 50s um, – he was always, you know, playing all kinds of sports. You know, he was a basketball player. I think he told me he was a baseball player. And two or three of the guys that he played sports with were still very mobile in 2017, 18, and 19. And the three of them would get together and they would go to dinner somewhere in the Bay Area. Um, so, you know, he was still getting together with friends, you know, during that whole NBA tournament. So that's kind of what I remember about uh, Hubie. And then, of course, um, legendarily was a college roommate with Frank Layden. I mean, you can come up with like a zillion great uh, anecdotes for Hubie Brown, but my favorite is, you know, here we are in 2023, 24, and you could probably have him on the same show, ask him about a random player, and he would just go on for the next 10 minutes. He still pays attention to everything. Well, I, def I definitely don't doubt that. I mean, that guy has been had an incredible ride and uh, certainly – Glad he's back for yet another season in the NBA because he does a great job with the calls. Now, Kesty, pretty soon we're going to be getting into our two-a-days, which is our homage to football season, which is about to begin. Can you tell us a little bit about your college football schedule? Are there any games that you're especially excited to call? Yeah, I, um, I'm actually back to work uh, this weekend. I probably have to give a date to it. I don't know when uh, folks will see it, but uh, the Labor Day weekend, week one, is largely on Saturday. I think that's, what, September 2nd. Sunday night, September 3rd, there's a standalone game, Florida State and LSU, which will be on ESPN Radio. So we're jumping nice. right out of the gate into a great intersectional matchup, the only top 10 matchup in week one. Uh, my crew, Kelly Stoffer, former Seahawks quarterback, Ian Fitzsimmons, longtime ESPN radio guy. He's our sideline guy. Um, we had at least three or four LSU games last year. So interested to see uh, year two with Brian Kelly. And then obviously those two teams played one of the best games of the season last year, a blocked extra point and a one point Florida State win. And it's in Orlando, which is, you know, four hours from Tallahassee. And I don't, I don't know the math, maybe uh, six or seven or eight hours from New Orleans. So should be a crazy scene. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we have a game at Utah. 
I know we just had the All-Star game in Salt Lake City, but I've never called a college football game at Rice-Eccles, which is actually up in the hills above Salt Lake City. It's a really cool setting. And I think we have two or three USC games later in the season. Uh, we did a bunch of Caleb Williams games. So, uh, as always, I'd like to thank Sean Kelly, who left to become the voice of the Florida Gators and opened up uh, this little spot as the lead college football guy. We have some really good games. Pretty cool stuff there. Well, before we get into our own two-a-days here, I was curious if you've had a chance to watch Team, Team USA in the FIBA Basketball World Cup. They obviously just continued to roll with their win over Greece, 109-81. One guy that's really stood out to me, I'd be curious to get your thoughts, Austin Reeves. He had a team-high 15 points, a team-high six assists, and finished second on the team in rebounds, all coming off the bench. I mean, what's your big takeaway with this team? Have you been able to watch them at all or just the makeup of it I'd be curious to get your thoughts on uh, how you think they're faring so far yeah I uh, I might be tested uh, with the Jordan game and the uh, not the Michael Jordan game but the game against <laughs> Jordan and the time that it starts but uh, I have watched most of the first two games I was very fortunate uh, to call 2010 and 2014 World Cup uh, in Istanbul and uh, in uh, the span the one that was in Spain as well so I'm always fascinated I've done some FIBA lead-ups with uh, PJ, so that's always uh, front center in my mind. It's funny you bring up Austin Reeves because, you know, you wonder if that was just a flash, you know, for the Lakers after the All-Star break um, last year. And, you know, here he is coming off the bench for Team USA, and that first game was New Zealand, right, where they look so sluggish yep. early. And Steve Kerr seems, you know, he's got a deep team. He seems very comfortable 1 through 12 or at least 1 through 10. And he will sub out those five for the next five. And uh, Austin Reeves, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, who's on the verge of becoming, you know, a, a superstar in the league. Uh, Paolo Bancaro, I'm, I'm excited to see where Orlando, you know, if they're going to make a move this year. They're a bunch of young teams you'd like to see uh, make a move. He's also coming off that bench. So um, this is uh, a team that uh, feels like it's heading in the right direction. We've been tested. We, as in the U.S., been tested without our best players in these World Cups. And so you're not quite sure what you're going to get. Uh, but this one, as they showed in the exhibition uh, season as well, you know, has been uh, right from the start, you know, right there. And they had a good one against Germany in the exhibitions. I think Germany's going to be a team they might have to see before this is all over. Um, and, of course, I'm fascinated to see if uh, Canada – can stay on this role because they have so many great players. They don't have all of them. Jamal Murray wasn't able to play, uh, but the Canadian folks always just kind of say, well, you know, it's probably not our time anyway. I think they're going to get behind this team. It should be a lot of fun. You know, you mentioned Steve Kerr and, uh, you know, Steve obviously is one of the all-time great coaches. It's no longer like, hey, he's one of the best coaches in the league. He's one of the best coaches ever. So he's got Brandon Ingram on his team, and, and Ingram has expressed frustration with his role so far, but since the team is winning, he realizes he has to temper his feelings. So Kerr acknowledges that, you know, things haven't gone his way and said B.I.'s time is coming, but I would imagine this has got to be a pretty common feeling with a lot of these players. You're a star all your life, and now you're just one of many stars fighting for minutes. Yeah, no, absolutely, and... I think Steve Kerr tried that with Anthony Edwards as well, right? Telling him about uh, Kobe, you know, guys had to wait behind him. And he's like, yeah, we don't have a Kobe. So I should be starting. I don't want to be coming off the bench. I think Team USA, at least in the iteration 
when Mike Krzyzewski took over, um, you know, has it's been about team. It's, you know, not always about individual talent. You know, still to this day, I don't know if Carmelo Anthony gets enough praise for what he meant to those gold medal winning teams. You know, you think of Kobe, you think about LeBron, you think about D. Wade, and, uh, you know, Melo doesn't often uh, get talked about in that vein. And I thought he handled it, you know, the way hopefully, you know, many should handle it, uh, especially in a World Cup where, you know, Steve Kerr is going to be the coach next year in Paris. And one would assume that we're going to get the quote unquote A level stars of the day coming for the Olympic team. And I would think, um, you know, that some of these guys have an opportunity, much like that 2010 team when I was in uh, Istanbul. Um, you know, just trying to remember some of the guys that were on that team Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Derek Rose, Steph Curry play on that team. You know, and so you have a chance to, you know, just do your part. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, Brandon will do that. And you're right. Winning kind of washes any of that negativity away uh, for now. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark, because I think one of the biggest things for Anthony Edwards this summer, working with a coach like uh, Steve Kerr, Eric Spolstra, Mark Few, you name it. I think this is going to be huge for his development. I think the two biggest players that are going to be uh, – seeing the dividends of playing in this Team USA experience is going to be, um, of course, Anthony Edwards, and then the the other one being Paolo Boncaro, which you already had mentioned there. So when it comes to those two guys, do you see them elevating into, for, for Boncaro, do you think he'll be an all-star next year based on this experience? And then for the Edwards, I said it last show, I know it's kind of a, uh, I guess a bold statement, but I think Anthony Edwards has a, the capabilities to be an all-star game starter this year. I just really think he's going to take a, take a turn and, and make a huge stride in his game based on this experience and bring it back to Minnesota. So what's your thoughts on those two players heading into next season? I'm so excited for Ben Carroll's career. Um, he would probably have to have some, you know, crazy numbers, you know, through half of the season, a little more than half of the season, uh, you know, to get to all-star, but maybe, I mean, you can't throw that away. And obviously Orlando, you know, if they can make that move, there's some teams in the East that I'm really interested in seeing if they make that move, the Indianas, the Orlandos, um, you know, Cleveland also is a young team that had a really high seed last year. Uh, so Bancaro, you know, he's off to a good start. Yes. Maybe there's an outside shot. I am all with you on Anthony Edwards. Um I just think he's got the right attitude. He obviously has the skill set. Uh, he's he's at a franchise, you know, where you know it feels like they already have their elder statesman set with Carl Anthony Towns, and then Gobert comes over last year. It felt like, and I don't know if it was true, if there was any friction there, where you got the young guy kind of nipping at. Cat's been there forever, but I think you know Anthony is starting to establish himself that. This team's going to have to go through him. And I think that's going to be, you know, on Carl Anthony Towns as well to recognize that if he hasn't already. Um, so I do think this experience is going to mean a lot for Minnesota, which is one of those teams in the West also that, um, you know, are very curious coming into the season. Outside of Denver, I don't know if I have a great feel for all the rest of the contending teams, you know, in the NBA because of player movement um, and also, um, you know, you just don't know 
how these teams are going to react coming off of last year. You can't just extrapolate that the Lakers are going to be who they were for those last 20 games. You know, can Phoenix, you know, with their um, new addition, uh, Bradley Beal, you know, do they have enough depth to be as good as everyone thinks they are? And then, you know, I think the Boston Celtics are going to be an interesting uh, laboratory experiment to see if just shifting a player or two can get them over the top. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a lot of question marks with the movement that's gone on with either coaches or players or disgruntled guys. And uh, with that said, let's go ahead and get into our two days and let's start off with the defending champion Denver Nuggets. And uh, Bruce, uh, I'll let you start us off here with uh, the two day focus on the Nuggets. All right. Let's start with the least important thing first. Okay. okay. <laughs> on Friday, track and field star Noah Lyles, who's a world champion in the 100 and 200 meters, said the title of world champions, which the Nuggets, as NBA champion currently own, is not legit because he said they're world champions of what? The United States? Now, Aaron Gordon of the Nuggets was one of many NBA players to clap back at Lyles, but does Lyles have a point or is he just full of it? Kesty, what do you think? You know, um, I used to get this way about the World Series in baseball. You know, it's the World Series, but nobody else from the rest of the world gets to compete. It's just the teams in the American and National League. And Japan, <laughs> obviously, has had a great history of baseball for, you know, over a century. And now, obviously, um, you know, in South America and, and other parts of the globe, they're playing baseball. I was in South Korea five, six years ago on vacation. And, you know, baseball's on TV every day, you know, whether it be American or Korean. So, yes, he has a point, but we all know this is the best league in the world. You know, everyone always talks about, you know, the ACB in Spain is the second best league in the world. And you could rank, you know, where you think other countries' leagues are. But there's no doubt, just looking at the international flavor, you start off with the Denver Nuggets and Nikola Jokic, that the best players in the world are in America. And so, yes, it is a North American championship, but it is a world championship. I like what Kevin Durant said. Does somebody want to tell him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now with the Nuggets, uh, of course, you know, it's been a fun offseason tracking uh, the Joker as he is now back home and still celebrating a lot of clips going viral with him dancing around uh, the streets there and whatnot. But as far as the team is concerned, it's been a very quiet offseason roster wise. And, you know, I, I, I'm just a little curious what your take is on that, Mark. I mean, it looks like this next season is going to be a big test for um, second-year man Christian Brown with the departure of Bruce Brown and Jeff Green. And uh, just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on kind of the no news on Denver's front of trying to improve this roster any, any more. Yeah, this is where uh, we'll be opening up our ESPN radio season with, uh, was it the Lakers in Denver, October 24th, like on a Tuesday night? I got to get through many college football games before that, so I haven't committed it to memory. But um, that said, you know, when the San Antonio Spurs had their great run of championships, they never did it consecutively. I mean, what the Golden State Warriors uh, were mostly able to do, even just to get there every year, even if they didn't win them all, was remarkable. And it's hard to go a full season, have a short off season, and then get right back to it. And Jamal Murray not playing in the World Cup is helpful. Nikola Jokic not playing in the World Cup is helpful. Um, Bruce Brown is a big loss, you know, for what these 
for what he did. He wasn't a major, major player of the starting five, but not only was he their sixth man, but he could play any position. I mean, he could guard centers, you know, and uh, he could play any position on the floor. So it'll be interesting to see. You're right. Christian Brown um, was tested as a rookie. I thought he learned a very valuable lesson end of the Western Conference Finals when he wasn't producing and Mike Malone pulled him, but then brought him right back for game one and came up with like two or three steals and kind of set him into the offseason with really good feeling. Um, I think the Reggie Jackson acquisition is interesting because they brought him in uh, late last year and he never played at all, no. you know, to the point where, you know, you got a, a, an NBA guy who could help you get a few minutes if you need him. And there were a couple times they needed him and didn't use him, gave him a little run here. And now I think he's he's that guy. You know, he's going to be that backup for Jamal Murray. So he's going to be an important piece. And obviously health is everything. Uh, Jokic is, you know, my leader in the clubhouse, you know, five weeks ago already to get his third MVP in four years. Uh, Jamal Murray was just getting in a good rhythm right now. Um Aaron Gordon had a terrific finals. So to me, it's just same guys. Jeff Green, maybe, you know, you could argue. Great voice in the clubhouse. Could bring in, bring you 5, 10, 12 really good minutes. So they got to replace him as well. You know, do they trust some of the young guys? Peyton Watson, who I think has uh, some good talent. Zeke Naji, we really haven't seen much of him. Um, so, you know, will some of those young guys come up and take those minutes of those guys that we saw leave? Um, I just think in the West, not really – I need to see Phoenix to believe it over a long stretch. Um, I need to see the Warriors with Chris Paul off the bench, you know, to see what that dynamic's like. I do think the Lakers can be a real player. You know, LeBron seemingly is going to play to 50. And, you know, if Anthony Davis stays healthy, I still don't know about the Clippers, what's going on there. Uh, but – all that said is to bolster the fact that Denver doesn't have to be, you know, a 65 win team uh, to win, to have the top seed in the West and set themselves up for next year. So I just think it's uh, all status go pray for health and let's see what the, um, what the reserves can bring you. I think that's a good, good problem for Michael Malone heading into this uh, chance at a repeat year. You said LeBron will probably play at least 50. Anthony Davis would be happy to, play 50 games yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some anyway. parts of this body are already approaching 50 <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right last question on denver uh is about the aforementioned nikola Jokic. 28 years old a lot of it seems like he should be like 34 with all everything he's done in his career but a lot of players actually play their best ball between 28 and 32 is it possible that we still haven't seen the best of Nikola Jokic, and if he can improve, what would that even look like? Yeah, that's that's scary. That's a scary thought because the game's already slow for him. Um, you know, we don't get a ton of access throughout the year with Nikola, but we do during the finals. You know, we had him in our interview room twice, I think, during the finals. It was a short finals. And... Um, he just doesn't want any praise. You know, he doesn't want to talk about himself. He loves talking about his teammates. He loves setting up his teammates. He loves twisting the defense, you know, so that they don't know what's coming. And he, he can make unreal passes. His court vision is incredible. And he shoots threes, you know, on top of it. So if he gets better than he already is, I mean, that's just scary, especially, you know, with some of those young players like Michael Porter Jr., 
Uh, and certainly he and Jamal Murray are a great, you know, one-two combination. So if they're just coming into their prime, you know, it's just about health. You know, if they could stay healthy. What does it look like? Uh, um, he's still going to score 25 to 30 points. He's still going to rebound double digits. You know, he, I, I, and I don't know if there's going to be a triple-double average. But, you know, he can get you 10 assists and a half if he wanted to. If guys hit shots, you know, he right, puts them right. in perfect spots and you're not always going to hit those shots when you're out on the perimeter. And, um, you know, if his three-point percentage, you know, grows a little bit, then, you know, maybe that just makes him completely unguardable. So uh, that would be a scary thought if he's just coming into his prime. Totally agree with that as well. And uh, with that, we've reached our halftime buzzer. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our third quarter as we continue our two-a-days. Uh, let's talk about the Boston Celtics. You had mentioned them. I'll start off with my million-dollar question. Are they better off next season with Kristaps Porzingis and without Marcus Smart? You know, I live, Ross, close enough to Boston within two hours that I could hear the wailing and gnashing still <laughs> since the trade. It is the, uh, you know, $6 million question is, are they better? Um you know, you figure they're going to take a hit on the defensive end, being what Marcus brought to them, especially on the perimeter. But yet, you know, maybe Chris Apps Porzingis gives them something, you know, with Robert Williams, if he stays healthy and Al Horford, even at his advanced age. Uh, but it's all on the offensive. And that's where our question is going to be answered. Right. I mean, they've yeah. made the investment in Jalen Brown, the mega investment in Jalen Brown and Tatum's not going anywhere either. You know, it's going to go through those two guys. How do those two guys and Chris Stapps Porzingis work? You know, we were looking for how do Luca and Chris Stapps work. And there were times when it did and there were times when it didn't. So they'll make it work. I think the biggest um, improvement for me is that Joe Mazzulla gets some help on the bench. You know, not to cast shade at some of the young guys who were there with them because some of them have moved on to good positions as well. But when you get a guy like Sam Cassell, who's had so many years in the league, and folks are familiar with him as a player, and they've probably seen him on the bench all these years. Um, Charles Lee's another guy who has spent a lot of time on some really good benches. And Joe's a really sharp coach. Um, you know, we had to do interviews with him pregame. Bruce, I'm sure, uh, had a couple of times. And it's, you know, behind the scenes, you see some of the uncomfortability of doing those interviews and talking with the media and it's not necessarily something he wants to do, but, you know, that's something head coaches have to do. It's part of the game. And I think that he's going to be even better at that. He'll be more comfortable in his head coaching skin next year. So he, even beyond the guys who are helping him out, who are class guys, he's had a whole year of this because we sometimes forget that he was thrown in there right before the start of the season, you know, and, and given the keys to a team that had, you know, just been within two games of a championship. So, I think to me that's the big early season question is um, how these coaches prepare these guys. And I can't wait to see uh, what that dynamic looks like with those three players, especially on the offensive end. Yeah, I agree with you on the whole Missoula thing. I mean, th these not only was he thrown into it, you know, on the eve of the season when Ime Udoka was fired, but his number one assistant, Damon Stoudemire, left to go take the Georgia Tech job, you know, late in the regular season. So he didn't kind of have his top, you know, assistant next to him for the playoffs. And uh, 
you know, a lot of things working against him. But I agree with you. I think those two assistants will will make a a, a big uh, difference, helping him become the best version of himself, uh, as it were. I do have one more question about the Celtics. Jalen Brown, as you mentioned, got all the attention over the summer with his monster $300-plus million contract. Fairly or unfairly, is there going to be more pressure on Brown than on any other NBA player this season? That's a good question. Probably unfairly because we're going to judge him against that number, yet that was the system that was set up in the collective bargaining agreement you know, between the players and the, and the management. And then, of course, it fell on... Uh, the voters, you know, decide it's not um, local broadcasters anymore. It's national broadcasters. I am actually one of those uh, voters. I voted him second team all NBA. So it, in some little way, I helped enrich Jalen Brown and actually got a letter in the mail within the last week uh, thanking me for my uh, all NBA vote. It didn't thank me for, you know, you want to come on my boat sometime, but it was uh, <laughs> just a thank you nonetheless, which was appreciated. Um, but yeah, that 300 million dollars. It's a hard number to process. Um, you know, guys are going to be making 50 to 60 million dollars a year by the end of these Supermax deals. And, and we're just getting going. I mean, there's another media deal coming up, you know, in the next year or so. And we're going to be talking about guys making 70, 75, 80 million dollars, you know, before probably the end of the decade. So we probably have to get over production versus paycheck but i think that's just the nature of sports you know in our country and probably around the world too is if you don't produce you're going to be held to there's no way this guy's worth 50 million dollars yeah. i mean it's it's monopoly money it's beyond monopoly money now looking at the boston front court with the uh addition of kp um with time lord there robert williams as well do you think that's a situation where they might play both of them together or do you see them only having like one shot blocker on the floor at a time? Yeah, it's a good question. I bet um, they'll, they'll, they'll play around with it. You know, we'll see some times I would think uh, where they're both on the floor, maybe not initially, um, you know, and as much as I, I was a Marcus smart fan, huge fan. I mean, I, I lost my fandom years ago. I grew up in upstate New York. So any team Boston, sorry, Bruce was, you know, uh, you know, if I brushed my shoulder against a Red Sox jersey, I spent the rest of the day cleaning off my shoulder. <laughs> so I, I am no fan growing up with the Celtics, but I am a fan of that organization with uh, Brad Stevens. And there's no better place for me to have a chance to call a game than when you're inches from the parquet of uh, the Boston Garden, even though it's the TD Garden and not the original. So, you know, I love that franchise. I love calling games there. I called a Marcus Smart game when he was uh, at Oklahoma State and got to know him as a younger man. So I was thrilled for his success. Uh, he embodied everything about uh, the Boston Celtics. And so they'll miss him terribly. But I think keeping Malcolm Brogdon, because if I'm not mistaken, he was in that initial trade that didn't happen, uh, you know, before um, the, the, the redeal and uh, sending Marcus out somewhat shockingly to Memphis. So I think, you know, keeping Brogdon, um, Derek White has been a great acquisition for them as well. Uh, they got the pieces. It's just, it's, I guess they figured that they couldn't get over the hump with what they have. Let's just shift it a little bit. And uh, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of different iterations of Porzingis, Porzingis and Williams. I think what gets lost, and it got lost to me too, because at some point I stopped watching the Wizards on my league pass, 
was what a great season he was having. So I want to see if Chris Stapps can do that with this team, with those two guys, Tatum and Brown. Because uh, I, I, you know, until I saw the trade, I'm like, what? And then I saw he averaged 23 and eight. And I'm like, you know what? That's a really good season. That's a bounce back season for him. And now let's see if he can uh, bring it to Boston. Awesome there. Well, as we get into our fourth quarter here, it's actually mailbag time, Mark. So we have some listener submitted questions. We'd like you to join us in answering. And uh, our first question comes in from John. John asks, who do you think gets traded first, Damian Lillard or James Harden? Oh, man, do I get to go first? Yeah. Uh, can I say neither? <laughs> I would, you know, I'm thinking maybe neither, but based on that, I'm going to say James Harden because I could see Damian Lillard ending up, you know, starting the year in Portland after what Harden said about his boss. I don't know how that flies, but it's going to go into training camp. It has to at this point. And my feeling, my feeling is that I believe it's going to be Lillard who's traded first because we know there's at least one team, Miami, that's interested in him. With Harden, I don't know if any teams that are really interested in him at this point, so they can trade him to nobody. And I'm going to say that uh, James Harden is going to be traded first. I think the Clippers will find a way to finagle a deal out with Philly. Uh, Obviously, at this point, I think Terrence Mann is the holdup in that, but uh, as the value continues to drop on the beard, I think – you know, they'll just accept whatever they can get because it sounds like Harden is definitely going to hold out. So, John, thanks for the question there. Our second question comes in from Matt. And Matt asks, what are your thoughts on the NBA's new in-season tournament and how would you improve it? I love it. I, I was on Summer League television when they rolled it out and I professed to Seth Greenberg, who was doing games with me, how much I'm going to enjoy this. And I can't tell you how many unnamed NBA people got back to me and said, this is a terrible idea. Nobody cares about it. And, you know, I can't give an improvement angle because I haven't seen it yet. But I would say for people just have to understand what it is. It's no different than a regular season game. It's just it has an implication of a tournament to it. So nothing's changing in your regular season schedule except two teams are going to end up playing an 83rd game because they're going to get to the championship game. So I love it. It's a little different. It's probably going to take, I don't want to say a generation, but it's going to take that younger generation, you know, kids who are maybe 9, 10, 11 years old, and you see, I don't know, put a team out there. Uh, The Oklahoma City Thunder are the first NBA Cup champions, you know, where you win a little something, you know, at a neutral site in Las Vegas in – December that it's maybe that young team that's going to take that next step maybe it's the Denver Nuggets who knows you know they will win both titles this year so I just think it's going to take a few years I don't see uh, the negatives to it so I'm all for it I think that 83rd game the winner of that should receive the Mikhail Bridges trophy because (laughs) he was the only guy in the league that played 83 games last year so hey why not right all right, I'm going to mildly disagree with you, Kesty. okay? I don't really have anything specific at this point, but I'm going to take a wait-and-see attitude. Initially, I kind of felt it was unnecessary because it seemed so con- contrived. I thought it was an opportunity to create another champion that isn't really a champion. And if Oklahoma City does win this, do you think they'll put a banner up uh, for it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, you know, maybe they will because it's Oklahoma City and they're right. Lean years, uh, you know, uh, since uh, all the guys have departed. 
But I just think it's, um, yeah, it's it's just another notch in the belt. I think it would be cool if the Denver Nuggets are the first one to win it and or whoever wins the NBA championship next June to say, you know what, they were so good, they won both titles this year. Yeah. Or, it could be, or it could be really cool if somebody like the – the 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 uh, Houston Rockets or the Pistons won it because then it would really you know be legit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I echo your guys' thoughts. It's a wait and see approach for me. I'm more curious to see how this plays out in Vegas of all cities. I mean, and seeing how much the stars, how serious they take this because you know the content's going to come out of them being out at casinos and nightclubs. It's bound to happen, uh, but. I think the way this can certainly continue to improve is what the New Orleans Pelicans uh, just recently rolled out for their season ticket holders. They're actually, if, if you're a season ticket holder and they win the first annual in-season tournament, they're going to give some of the proceeds of the winnings back to their fans. I think that'd be a cool way to kind of get fans invested is if some of the winnings that the franchise gets for that goes back to the fan base that's paying good money to see this team play on a nightly basis. So that's, uh, that's really cool. And and I'm, I'm a little biased because the ESPN radio schedule includes the semis and the championships in Las Vegas. But Ross, you bring up a good point because the only NBA action that's ever happened in Las Vegas, if correct me if I'm wrong, are summer league games. Obviously the Lakers played some games there in the eighties. There was like the you know, all-star right, game was there one year. The all-star game was there one year. But even that leads to my point, which is it's always been fun in games and not yeah. the game, you know. Yeah. So this will be a semi and a final. So for at least two teams, two legit games that are being played in that circus atmosphere. You know, maybe someday there's going to be a franchise in Las Vegas and, you know, kind of like the hockey team. It's just a home game. Um, but it will be interesting to see how uh, how the players treat it because we know during the playoffs – Guys are going out. There's no doubt about that. But you're buckling down with, uh, you know, an NBA championship on the line. Will that be the same with an NBA Cup on the line? Hey, wasn't Pac-Man Jones the MVP of that All-Star game in Las Vegas <laughs> that year? I seem to recall him being a big name that weekend. I took my wife and my daughter, who was then 10 years old, because they came to a bunch of NBA All-Star games with me. And it was my wife's first and only trip to Las Vegas because it was – so not representative of what Las Vegas is. That's all she knows. And she has told me since 2007, I think it was, that, uh, yeah, she'll be never going back to Vegas. <laughs> all right, guys. Last question here comes from Mike. And Mike asks, a few players each year make major jumps after playing for Team USA. Any predictions on who they, they might be on this year's roster? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, – you know, look, Ben Carroll's rookie of the year, right, going into his second year. So I, I don't know if we can count him on that. Uh, Austin Reeves is already a known quantity. So I would have put him in that uh, category as well. Same thing with, you know what? There's a lot of guys who've done a lot of good things here. Tyrese Halliburton's already putting up numbers. I think, and this is a way off the uh, radar roster position, but I don't think Josh Hart has been appreciated for what he brings to the game. I was so happy when Steve Kerr in his press conference talked about, you know what position he plays? He plays winner. And it was a great comment because that's what the Knicks, you know, have. And I hope that maybe this is a springboard, you know, to, to, he's a big part of that team, uh, you know, as they, you know, regather and, 
uh, look to get beyond the second round where they got last year. So there's so many good players on there that I think are already established, led by Jalen Brunson, and I listed the other ones. But I'm going to go way off and go with Josh Hart. You know, as we discussed earlier, and actually, Kesty, you mentioned the two guys that I was going to mention. Austin Reeves, I think, could be that guy. He was already making a name for himself last season with the Lakers, and he's done very well uh, early in the FIBA tournament. And as you said, Paolo Bencaro had a great start, and last season was Rookie of the Year, and he could very well become an all-star for, like, the foreseeable future because he arguably should have been an all-star as a rookie. I mean, the guy averaged 20. You know, that's kind of an all-star number. So I see those two guys as as the leaders, you know, out of the gate. Like when they hit the ground running this season, I think both will be breaking out. I'm going to go with an unpopular pick myself. I'm going to go with Walker Kessler, who's on this year's team. And uh, he's a young guy that was just a rookie last year in Utah. Being surrounded by this group of players, being able to shadow Jaron Jackson Jr., one of the best defenders in the NBA, and then also – we talked about the coaching staff there. I think he could develop a lot of confidence from this experience and take it back to Utah for his sophomore season. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what Kessler uh, learns from this opportunity. So yeah, I, I'm not a good teammate because I listed like the entire roster before you guys <laughs> had a chance. I, I do a lot of uh, college basketball games with Bob Valvano, and uh, he's been such a great partner over the years. But I remember many years ago when we first started working together, we do this thing called the scene set. Bruce knows about it. You know, we set the stage for the game, for the pregame show. And uh, we taped it and he looked at me and he goes, hey, Kesty, leave a little meat on the bone for me. <laughs> I apologize for naming every member of Team USA as uh, my next <laughs> year. It's all good there, Kesty. And I think we've eaten all the meat off the bone for this edition of the 48 Minutes podcast. But before we go, we want to thank you for joining us on tonight's show. Um, for our listeners that may not be following you on social media, um, what's the best way they can do that? Well, it's I would just say it's at Mark Kestisher, and that's already fraught with problems because Mark is spelled with a C, <laughs> and Kestisher is Kestisher. So good luck with that. Okay. Um, yeah, it's uh, I, I love being interactive with some of our uh, radio listeners. Gets interesting. Uh, people ask me to uh, use a particular word in the broadcast that I may never use in my vocabulary, and sometimes I oblige if it uh, if it works out in a in a perfect way. So uh, yeah, you can find me on whatever it's called, Twitter X something X. something I don't pay for that's still free for me. X Twitter. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much. And uh, with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Kesty. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening, too. Great being on. Um